Here on the Denise Newsom Show, we give exposure where exposure is due. I am your host, Denise Newsom. I am going to ask you to please like, share, comment, subscribe, and don't be afraid to ask questions to our guests. If you have any questions, put it in the comment section. Remember to give us some warm hearts and likes. This evening, we have author Rick Muzon as our special guest. Our topic is a man of words. As a child, Rick spent time in a children's residential facility, which led him into a career in social services as a child protective service worker and family advocate. Rick is an author of three powerful books, plus more. Let's not prolong any further. Rick, how are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Good evening, Denise. Um, I, you know, I guess my um, early days inspired me to write stories. I always liked to write as a kid. Um, as mentioned, I was um, in the residential center and I had many memories of being in that facility and I used to call them war stories as I told them to my friends and family. And one, one day my best friend told me, you have all these memories. Why don't you put them in writing? So I just kept saying over the years, I'm going to, one day I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. Of course, no one, nobody believed me. And one day in 2007 or so, I just began to put my memoirs in words and just started writing my first book and the rest is history. <laughs> Right, right. So um, actually, it was your friend that really inspired you to start writing your books? Yeah, yes. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, you know, I just a lot of things that people thought I had forgotten or things that had been forgotten. I just kept them in my mind. I decided to just put them in words. And, right. you know, I said, even if I if I wrote them, people are going to read it and say, what? You know, no one's going to believe what I wrote. But, you know, the stories are true because I was right. there. I had a first-hand witness account. I had a front row seat to many of the happenings. Right, right. So let's talk about your first book, Vietnam on the Hudson. Enlighten us on that, if you will. Vietnam on the Hudson is a true story. Is about a child that was me who was in a residential facility in New York's Westchester County back in the 1970s. This was after my mom had passed away when I was eight years old and my dad worked a lot of hours. He couldn't be both mom and dad. And he, I guess he was afraid that I would get lost in the shuffle in the New York City public school system. So he got with uh, some of the social workers and therapists and whatever. And I long and short is that I was in this residential center for three years and I saw a lot of things up there, a lot of things good, a lot of things bad. And it inspired me to write about the memoirs. Some of the things I saw that were funny, some were downright sad and others were infuriating. And just um, many of the experiences I went through, 
Um, thankfully, it led me to a career because I had gotten some good influences up there that eventually led me into the career of social services and working with kids. I just, you know, uh, concentrated more on the positives and the negatives. Right, right. Amen. Amen. So how did you come up, actually come up with the title? You know, I thought at the time that it was like being in a war. It was wow. like a mental war for myself because wow. I, I was going through a very bad time in life. As I mentioned, I had lost my mom. Um, I began acting up in school. I got into fights. Uh, I would talk back to the teacher. Or I was very defiant. And maybe it was a thing where people felt they, they couldn't handle me. In reality, I was frightened. But my fear was masqueraded by anger and I was just taking it out on people and just doing things that I wasn't supposed to do. I mean, kids today, they get in, you know, they get into drugs and stuff. Thank God I never got into drugs or alcohol, but just, you know, cutting classes, right. uh, provoking fights, instigating fights and getting called into the principal's office and all that other stuff. So I guess, uh, they decided to just have people monitor me a little better 24-7. Right, right, right. So you, how long were you actually in, like, foster care? You you was actually in foster care or? I was in a resident, not, not foster care per se, but residential care. I, right, I, right. I never okay. was with foster parents. Parents, okay. Because I still had my natural dad. I had, I'm the youngest of three. I had okay. an older brother and sister. They had by that time we're graduating from high school going out into their own i was old maybe 10 years old and i was like a and i mentioned this in my book i was like a boat without a rudder and with everybody busy no one had time to navigate so it was felt that i needed more of that monitoring and structuring to get me on the right path get me back on track again because my train was derailing so I, I had to have someone to kind of watch me and get me back on track and get me back on the fast track. I always I was always a good academic kid. It's just, you know, a lot of things that bothered me, a lot of things that plagued me, if you will, in those days. Uh, you know, the loss of people close to me and just the sadness and such. But just have the people that have the people there to watch over me and um, let me know that everything is going to be OK. And, right, you know, a lesson right. or two in coping skills. Right. With the coping skills. Exactly. And in the residential um, home, did you find it helpful to you? Yeah. Looking back in retrospect, um, okay. there were a few negative people there. When I say negative people, some of the staff members. Right. Um, that I wrote in my I wrote about in my book. Um Kids weren't any worse than some of what I'd seen. I mean, I got into fights there, but not as bad. Um, some of the people that were working there, who I won't mention, it seemed like they were there just for the money, just for the greenbacks. Right. And some of them actually yeah. took took in pleasure into physically and mentally abusing kids. Um, the uh, manipulation, the gaslighting, and there's a lot of that going on with some of the staff up there. And I just, I, you know, I tried to avoid those type of people because I, I, over the years, I found out that 
they were they were rather toxic. They weren't there to help you. They were there to more to hurt you. So I found myself gravitating more towards those who were there to help me, albeit on the straight path. Right. Even though they they instilled, they may have instilled a little strictness, but they brought out that strictness because they knew that I was better than what I was. Right. And they saw the good in me and they wanted right. me to focus on the good and, you know, leave the bad to the wayside. Right, right. So they, from your experience in the residential home, um, it influenced you to do a 180? In what way did it did it help you? It helped me to find the way to kind of pay it forward to the next generation. Let me tell you something. It took me a while before I decided to embark on a career in social services because I, you know, I was 13 when I finally got back home and my, my teens and my early twenties, I really had no direction, Denise. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do career wise. I mean, I went through junior high school, I'd gone through high school, went to college, went to the service, and I had no idea. And then one day I went on a visit and I said, you know what? Maybe I want to work with kids. Maybe I want to work in a residential center or a group home. So um, around the mid 80s or so, I started um, doing some per diem work at a group home in Westchester. Okay. And after doing that for a little while, I said, you know what? I want to pursue this as a career. I want to go into social services. I want to pay it forward. I want to give back the things that were given me all those years before. And um, right. after some time, it led me to a full-time career um, as a, you know, as a youth counselor, as a youth group worker, and as a child protective services worker and working with right. families and such. Right. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. Your second book is entitled Savior of the Children. What motivated you to write that book? As mentioned, I was in child protective services in for 23 years, yeah. and I had seen a lot of things that CPS workers go through in their careers. Um, it's a burnout job. It's a very, very tough job. I'd seen burnout. I'd seen workers walking out in tears. I'd seen it where a worker will have this many cases, a big caseload this thick and only have enough time to work with maybe five families when they got 15 or 20 families to work with. And then the court papers and having to gear up for family court and then having to visit. And I'm just throwing out names here, the Jones family or right. Mr. and Mrs. Smith or right. is Mrs. is Mrs. Rodriguez taking care of her daughter. And, um, I had seen a high, I'd seen a high turnover in, in my 23 years because people can't have it. People can't handle it. I'm not saying everybody, you know, it takes a person to handle it. Um, I'd seen, and then, you know, I'd seen where workers had, had had knives pulled on them. I've seen workers get dogs sick on them. I've seen yeah. workers get cursed out, get spat on. I've been cursed out a few times. I had a mom liken me to people who'd snatched the Lindbergh baby. And that got to me. Okay. And uh, just, you know, we're, we're there for a purpose. 
and we're there for the safety of the child and the safety of the family. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that. Right. We look that we're looked upon as the enemy. Right. So the the um actions that was taken against the the staff, the workers, who is like their family or the children, their families. The families, yeah. Usually it's the parents, the parents, because no one wants to have their children taken away. Right. It doesn't matter what the circumstances right. are. No one likes to have their their children taken away, and um it's very disheartening to have to take a child away from his or her parents and have to put them in emergent foster home or resource home or maybe even a shelter. But, you know, when you see cases of abuse, neglect and whatever have you, that child is out on the streets, you know, you have to do what you have to do at times. Right. And um, it's uh, a lot of overtime. Sometimes you're, you're going on only three hours of sleep because you have to get up again and you have to go to court or you have to go to the foster home and you have to make sure that the, the child gets to school okay and that they got enough, you know, they have clothes to wear and right. books and all that other, and they have enough food that they're fed and they're well right. cared for. Right. Um. So you had mentioned about like a lot of the staff have piles and piles of work. Um. So when they only have like time for five, what happens to the rest of them, the families? Well, now they get they may get farmed off to a secondary worker. If the if the caseload okay. is too big, they may get farmed off to a secondary worker, and then they, they will have you know a family team meeting to make sure that this family is doing okay or this child is in the right setting. Um, it's a no child left behind kind of thing. Uh, okay. There was a uh, lawsuit several years ago where in Newark, two children were left half starved to death in a basement. And mm. the state was the state was sued over that. And it was a that culminated in a modified settlement, which led to something called educational stability. So if a child is placed in a resource home, it is the responsibility of the caseworker or the agency to make sure that that child gets to school, even if the caseworker has to go to the home or the foster home or the resource home, pick the child up, transport them to school, and even um, bring them back from school in the afternoon and make sure that they're in a stable resource home and that the caregiver is there for them. So right. it's not it's not it's not a perfect it's not a perfect thing, but it's a lot better than it was seven, eight, ten years ago. Wow. Wow. In your experience, what kind of clients are the most difficult to work with, the children? Well, you know, it's it's easy to say that it's more difficult to work with the teenage clients because the teenagers teenage. can get teenagers can get rebellious. Um I've had I had one young client who I found out that had some kind of streptococcus, they call it MRSA. It's an acronym. I forgot that I have it in my book. I forgot what it, but it's a very contagious illness where it's open wounds and such. Um, oh, wow. I've had young, I've had young clients come from homes with bed bugs, head lice, um, children who haven't uh, been properly potty trained. So mm. it, it, you know, you just run the gamut. I'm it can be a whole variety. So you have to look at the background and make sure that uh, 
what kind of client you have, what kind of uh, home this uh, child came from, and go from there. Wow. Wow, that is just like heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking to hear. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But they have good people like yourself working there, and I'm sure that uh, you had a lot of other staff that was definitely... Um, you know, inspiration and influence their lives so they can make a turn, a 180 turn. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get back to your writing. I understand that you are a collector of die-cast model cards and have written a book on collecting. Please tell us about co your collecting hobby and how that led you to writing a book on that. I've been collecting since I was 12 years old, and that's okay. decades. Um, <laughs> I've been collecting Hot Wheels, Matchbox, and other die casts. I've even collected big scale models. Um, when I was a kid, my parents took me to the store. I didn't want a Slinky. I didn't want a GI <laughs> Joe. I wanted a car. So I just started this little collection, and a little collection became a big collection, and now I have over 1,600 vehicles in my collection. Ooh, this is after wow. collecting for some five decades. Um, I wrote a book. It's called Diecast Car Collecting 101 Bumper to Bumper, and it covers collecting the diecast, how the hobby started, where you can find diecast, all the, the retail stores, the swap meets, um, how to customize. I've even gotten into customizing and restoring some Hot Wheels cars. And wow. this is, this is an, I don't know if the camera catches this. This is an example right here that I made yes. for a neighbor. It's a uh, Dodge Challenger that I painted up and I put the RT stripes on. I have a neighbor that lives up the street, has the same exact car. I was thinking about presenting it to him. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm told that when I learned to talk as a baby, my first word was car. It's like, oh, you know, wow. four, four years old. I could, point, <laughs> I could point to a car and say, that's a Buick LeSabre or, you know, wow. that's a Plymouth Duster, whatever kind of car. Just car, 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 car. So cars are the love of my life. And, you know, I just, uh, I just, um, it's just something that uh, I cherish. Wow. Wow. Now, <laughs> my my mouth dropped when you said that you repair those cars instead of just throwing it out and buying <laughs> another one you mean to tell me you repair them yeah i restore them i take older <laughs> ones i take older ones that are ready for the scrap heap and i'll strip them down and i'll repaint them i'll clean them i'll repaint them make them good as new again give them a new lease on life you know wow. um there was a show uh came on a few years ago it, it, it was about real cars but at the end at the end of the show the announcer said don't crush them restore them so i you know i tell my fellow collectors you know don't throw them away restore them restore or give them, them to me give them to me and i'll restore them for you i just did one for my boss last week he had a, a 55 uh nomad that was chipped of paint and everything and i just took it apart cleaned it and i gave it to him he's like wow you know it was, it was something that he had as a kid for the last i don't know last 30 years or so and i just decided to take it upon myself to take it and repaint it restored for him wow it's a labor wow. of love it's a labor say it of again love. i'm sorry 
It's a labor of love. Yes, yes, yes. When you restoring it, it sure is. You're mm -hmm. so right. You're mm -hmm. so right. That's amazing. Are, are you planning um, a fourth book? I've been thinking along the lines of a fourth book, Denise, but you know, I'll be darned if I know what to write about this time. Okay. I have no idea. I mean, my first book was quasi-autobiographical. My second book with the saviors, that's a, kind of like a story about Chop Texas of Services. And let me just give you a disclaimer. The sure. happenings, some of the happenings in that book are true, yet the characters within are fictitious because, you okay. know, I'm still, even although I'm retired now, I still think about the confidentiality and I protect people. So I don't give real names and such. And then the other book about um, <clears throat> diecast collecting and, I, you know, I've been racking my brain about what to write about. I was thinking, thinking about maybe doing something about classic movies or classic cinema. But, you know, every other book out there is about vintage cinema, classic movies and the like. Right, right. And, you know, you can have a million books on those topics, but each one of them will be different because they're coming from different. You have a different perspective than each is unique. The, exactly. Exactly. So you know, you pray about it. God will lead and guide you on, you know, what to write about next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rick, I tell you, you have a lot going on. How do you balance your work and personal life? You know, it's the thing of not going, ah! <laughs> no, <laughs> I, know I, I try, I just try to pace myself Luckily, I have a very understanding boss at work and I, you know, I bring my laptop in and I will um, create things. I okay. will get creative. You know, I get creative in my downtime. Like, for instance, I talked about the car thing. Right now, I've gotten to the point where I'm <clears throat> creating racing decals for small race cars or I may be writing a story, just something that I thought up while I'm driving. And I've done a few short stories here and there. And um, I also uh, maybe think about if I write a short story, maybe putting it out in voice form or maybe doing some narration. I'm always thinking of something. I'm always, there's always something rolling upstairs that, and maybe I can maybe put it on, put it on paper or put it on microphone. Right, right. That's a gift and a talent from God to be able to, mm -hmm. you know, come up with all these different ideas and stuff like that. What mm -hmm. do you do when you're not working? You know, when you're not working, what do you do? When I'm not working, my mind is working. I'm always thinking so of doing something creative. I'm always thinking of either writing a story or writing a small mini biography about something. Um, I just did one, um, a small podcast about the history of Warner Brothers and motion pictures or I'll take a walk outside maybe I'll go for a drive somewhere and just I don't know, walk along um, walk along the waterfront and just try and relax or you know just sit and you know lay and stare at the ceiling and watch an old movie but there's always something going on always something going on that's good that's mm -hmm. good that's very very good mm -hmm. um what advice? do you have for our listening audience? You know, for the young people, I would tell them that even though times are rough right now, there's always that little nugget of 
hope. There's always that little positive. I mean, you can have 99 negatives, but the one positive. Work on that one positive and just, you know, never let it go. And when you get, you know, when you feel like you're at your wit's end, you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. In other words, never, ever, 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 ever give up. Never give up because there's always that one little thing that one little positive light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not always another train coming at you. There may be just that light at the end of the tunnel. Follow that light at the end of the tunnel. Right, right. Just like you did. You did the same thing. So it's not like you talking for some from some place that you read or anything mm-hmm. like that. You're talking from your own experience to the young, uh, to the young generation. Now, what about mm-hmm. the adults? the older generation, what would you say to them as an adult as you are now? You know, there's always, as the adult, you have the expertise, you have the background, work on that background and maybe pay it forward to the younger generation. Maybe you can step in and volunteer or maybe do something creative or teach something creative to the young bloods out there. The young bloods are looking for that influence, that influence that's going to keep them off the streets. I, you know, I, I always go by credo. When you stay off the streets, you stay out of trouble. I know it's, it's old, it's worn out and everything like that, but try to be that mentor, try to be that positive influence for the young bloods out there, because, you know, there's too many of them out, out here that feel like there's no hope, there's no direction, there's no nothing. And if you can just step in and just talk to them, find out where they're coming from, Get to understand what their issues are and maybe work on that. Yes. And maybe you can get them somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. That's very, 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 very good advice, Rick. Our time is um, up. Um, I want to thank everyone that is watching We appreciate you. We love you. Rick, you are phenomenal. Thank you for enlightening and sharing with us. For those that are watching, please support Rick. Purchase his books. Christmas is coming up, and that will be a great Christmas gift. That will be a great Christmas gift. You can... and if I may say something, you don't have to worry about it coming from overseas. I mean, you you order it today, you can get it tomorrow or the next day. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that, Rick. Join us next week. We have Victoria Colbreth as our special guest. She is the owner and founder at Victoria's Fragrances and More. She has a movement called Healthy Living with Victoria. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are serious about losing weight and living a more healthy lifestyle, you don't want to miss it. Prepare for 2021 with Victoria. The year of no more excuses. Tell somebody to tell somebody to tune in next week. God bless you. Stay safe. I will see you next week. And check out my website, denisenewsome.com. God bless. I need a little more time.